Well, we have just started over the past couple of weeks a new series on the book of Habakkuk. And if you're just joining us, I know some of you are just coming this week. I know for some of you, this isn't a very familiar book. So let me catch you up on what, what's going on here. Habakkuk is living in a time where his society is coming unglued. It is absolutely untethered. He looks around and injustice is pervasive. Uh, he sees violence all everywhere. Uh, and it is um, striking. He he sees violence on the streets, and he looks up in the uh, he looks up in the in the governing authorities, and all he sees is corruption. So there's violence, there's injustice, there's there's corruption, and and Habakkuk he cries out to God, and he asks God these these two most human questions: How long? And why? These questions that we have often asked. Some of you are probably asking tonight, how long and why? That's verses 2 through 4. But then God, he, he gives Habakkuk something that Habakkuk probably didn't expect. He gives him an answer. Habakkuk has been crying out over and over again. How long must I cry out and you not listen to me? And then God does something that, that Habakkuk must have been surprised about. He, he actually answered him. And here's the answer. He said, how long? Habakkuk, let me tell you. Soon and swift. And, and why? Why is there justice all around? Injustice all around? Habakkuk, justice is coming. And it's coming in the form of the Chaldeans. And they are going to crush your people. My people. Judah. I wonder if that is the answer Habakkuk was looking for. How do you think Habakkuk responded? I think he probably said in the passage that we're looking at, he, he said something like, if I was to summarize... Okay, God, sounds great. Yeah? No. In fact, Habakkuk's pretty troubled because the answer that he received from God, well, it's actually more disconcerting than the things that were causing his initial questions. Have you ever had that happen? You know, uh, my daughter asked me um, to explain things to her. Why is this? And I said, well, if I told you, you wouldn't understand. She says, no, tell me. And then I tell her and she says, I don't understand. That's what's going on with Habakkuk. God, I don't understand what is going on because he is more troubled now than he was at the beginning. Have you ever had that happen? I was at Labrie. It's a study center of sorts in England. It was started by Francis Schaeffer. It's a place for seekers and for doubters to come and to have space and time to seek out some of their questions and to see if there might be answers. I'm sitting there in this old English manor house in front of a fireplace, and I asked the guy next to me, what brings you here? And he said, well, I've been a Christian for a long time, and then I, I was studying the Bible, and I came across this word predestination. And I was like, what does that mean, and what is that all about? So I went and I, I asked some people and I got some books and I read about it. And and after I got my answers, well, I was so messed up that I couldn't even attend to my job. I had to quit. And I couldn't even attend to daily tasks. 
I, 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 was, I was so troubled by the answers that I received. And so I'm here. And sometimes God's ways and character confuse us and we can't understand what to make of it, especially in light of what we think we know about him. That's what is happening to Habakkuk. And in this passage, he he turns from just questioning to God to starting to argue with God. Habakkuk is is taking the position of a lawyer and he is he is pursuing his case. And his arguments revolve around two issues. The first is this, that the answer that God has given him, it just doesn't seem to line up with God's covenant purposes. Now, I want you to look at verse 12. Uh, Verse 12 in the English translations, whether it's the ESV or the NIV, whatever you have before you. uh, Verse 12, it sounds like Habakkuk is making this this, um, kind of bold confession of faith. Uh, He says, uh, oh, Lord, are you not from everlasting? And then he says, we shall not die. Right. That's your English translation. But you need to know something. One, that sounds a little jarring, right? I mean, Habakkuk is questioning God and he's saying, are you not from everlasting, O Lord? And for him to just turn and say, we shall not die, it's kind of like a non sequitur. It doesn't make sense. And I actually think that the English translations have got it wrong because in the Hebrew, you have to infer punctuation. It's kind of like in text. You know what I'm talking about? Was that an exclamation point? Are you yelling at me? Was that a genuine question? What is going on? Was it a statement? You have to infer based on the context. That's what's going on. And so so based on the context and the grammar, I, I think what's going on is Habakkuk is, is questioning. Oh, Lord, are you not from everlasting, my Holy One? And shall we not die? It, You have to understand that in Habakkuk's mind is something that is very, very important for any Israelite. And that is the covenant that God made with Abraham. You see, God made a covenant with Abraham, a sworn promise, an oath. And here's what that promise went like. It said, Abraham, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to give you a family. And that family is going to become a nation. And that nation, I'm going to bless that nation. And the reason I'm going to bless that nation is so that all of the families of the earth and all the nations of the earth can be blessed through that nation. And that nation is Israel. And by the way, Abraham, this covenant, it's an everlasting covenant. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. It is an everlasting covenant. And Habakkuk is saying... What's going to happen to your everlasting covenant? God, if what you do is correct, if you really send the Chaldeans after us, the Babylonians, if you send them after us, we're going to be annihilated. We won't exist anymore. And then what's going to happen to your everlasting covenant? Oh, everlasting God, I thought you were from everlasting. Did I not get this right? Are you from everlasting? Shall we not die? Shall we not be annihilated? That's what Habakkuk is saying. He's saying, God, I don't understand. And he presses the point in the next lines. Remember, you have to read these as questions. He's, oh, Lord, have have you ordained them as a judgment? And you, O Rock, have you established them for reproof? 
Then these, these wicked idolaters, that, the people that according to your own account in verse 11, worship their own power. I mean, if you destroy us, then who is left? What are we to make of your covenant promises? How are they going to go forth? And you, you're supposed to be my Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. God is, Habakkuk is reminding God of his covenant and he's saying, what is going to happen? How is this going to happen? I mean, how is this going to go forth? If, if this answer is correct, uh, you, verse 13, who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look in, on wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Now, Habakkuk's question, it sounds like a peculiar question that the ancient prophets used to ask, right? What are we to make of your covenant purposes? But I think this question is a question that we ask today. It just takes different forms. We ask it today and it looks like this. God, I sought a godly spouse. And I sought a godly spouse because, because I know that you want godly offspring. So, so if that's part of your covenant plan to make disciples of the world, then how does that line up with my infertility? How does, how does my infertility meet or match your covenant purposes? How, how does that make any sense? How does my singleness make any sense out of that? Or it could look like, how does my, my kids wandering from the faith? Since, since one of the primary ways that you want us to, to disciple people and disciple the nations and be sure that the, the earth is filled with the knowledge and glory of God as the waters cover the sea is actually through godly offspring. So, so why are you letting my kids wander? That's the way it looks today. Or maybe it looks like this. Maybe it says, God, I know that you had a covenant plan and it was through your people that you were going to bless the world. That the nations would know that you are the only true God. And you know what? I saved all this money and, and, I, and I quit my job and I raised support and I was going to go to these people who don't know you and have never heard your gospel and then COVID-19 hit and there's no international travel. I, I can't make sense of how this matches with, with your covenant purposes, God, for the nations. Or, or maybe you are supporting missionaries and the missionaries can't get their visas. And, and they're the only people in a region to witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're saying, how, God, does this line up with your covenant purposes? That through your people, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I mean, weren't we brought into the Abrahamic covenant? Or it can look like Paul wrestling with God in Romans 9 through 11 and saying, God, you sent your Messiah and, and, and all my fellow countrymen, or at least the majority of them, seem to be rejecting him. While Gentiles are accepting him and recognizing it. God, this doesn't make sense. 
the story of Christianity in Japan is one that has remained hidden for many years, but has more recently come to light due to um, the novel-turned-movie Silence. The story of Christianity in Japan is the story of Francis Xavier landing in 1549. Within two years there, there was a revival. He had a thousand converts within two years. Within 40 years, get this, a quarter of a million people in Japan were Christians. But with their rise, they became more of a threat. So 10 years later, at the end of the 16th century, the Jesuits were expelled. And then in 1597, 26 Christians were crucified. And that started the persecution. In 1614, you had to register as a Buddhist if you were remaining and you were a Christian. And if you did not register as a Buddhist, then you were tortured, killed, thrown into fires, scalded with hot water, hung upside down, beheaded, drowned, hung on crosses uh, on the beach and to be battered by high tide. 6,000. 6,000 were murdered. What about all the rest? The church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, that, that when Christians were persecuted in the early church, what you saw is actually the growth of Christianity in places of persecution. And so throughout Christian history, wherever you see the church under attack and under persecution, what you see is the gospel explodes and it starts expanding. Except in Japan. The rest, tens of thousands of Christians stepped on a bronze image of Jesus on a cross called a fumi, and they renounced their faith. And today it's less than 1% Christian. And it's one of the places that has the most access, but the least reached in all the world. And you hear that story and you say, God, how does this line up with your covenant purposes to bless the nations? How does this make any sense? Habakkuk argues with God because the answer that he gets from God doesn't seem to line up with God's covenant purposes to you. Do you argue with God? Well, you know, in order to do that, you actually have to, to know what God's covenant purposes are. You have to be so committed to them and understanding of them that, that when you see things in the world that don't make sense of his covenant purposes, that, then it causes you to, to argue with God. It just incites you. See, Habakkuk doesn't have a weak faith. This is a strong faith. He, he's, not, he's not doubting. He's perplexed. And so he argues with God. The second thing that he, that, that, that he argues with God about is, is he argues with God because God's answer doesn't seem to line up with God's creational program. Look at verses 14 through 17. 
Habakkuk uses this fishing, fishing analogy and this fish analogy to talk about the Chaldeans coming and attacking all the other nations, including Judah. So the Chaldeans are like fishermen and Judah are like fish. And then he says this in verse 14. Look at it. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. Now, if you were an Israelite at that time, or if you were an astute reader of the Bible today, then, then that, that verse should have some resonance. Those words should have some resonance. They actually point back to the very first book and the very first chapter of the whole Bible. To this very, very, very important verse. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the ground. God's programmatic statement in creation is that he created humans in his image. They were to be his righteous representatives. And that means that they were to represent God in his loving, caring rule to the world. And they were to develop and care for the world in righteous ways as God would. And yet, and yet humans stopped righteously representing God. And so what happens? What happens is, is God calls Israel and he gives them his law and he says, this is how you be human again. And now Israel is going to be destroyed. And he's saying, God, you're going to make mankind like the fish of the sea and like the crawling things that have no, no ruler. There will be no one to righteously represent you anymore if you let this happen to Judah, if you let us be destroyed. God, who will be left? Who will be left to, to lovingly represent you to creation? This seems to undermine your very creative purposes. And, and, and he pushes it further. He shows, uh, notice in verse 15, he, he talks about the, the development of fisheries. So if you look at it, at first he talks about a hook, right? And you catch a fish with a hook. And then he talks about a net. And you catch more fish with a net. And then he talks about a drag net. And this is basically the technological development. One person, one hook, one fish. One person, a net. More fish. Dragnet, hook on your boat, no people, no casting, lots of fish. What we have is technological development. And what Habakkuk is saying is, look, these Babylonians, they're using technological development. But notice, he's not talking about fishing. He's talking about war. He's saying they developed this, this technological machine to be able to to kill people. And he's like, the Babylonians have, have done this for, for destructive purposes and not according to your creative intent. And, and, and more than that, they actually worship their technology. Verse 16, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his drag, to his drag net. So what Habakkuk is reminding us of here is something that we often forget. And that is, is that we can steward and develop God's world in ways that are either productive or destructive. That technology is not simply neutral in our use of it. That, that our calling as humans uh, gives us this potential to, to steward and develop 
and care for God's creation in ways that cause the creation and humans to flourish. But our potential as sinners cause us to be able to develop God's creation in ways that are destructive. And Habakkuk says, God, the way in which the Babylonians are developing the world and what is going to happen if they they crush us, it seems to actually undermine their very purposes in creation. He argues with them about that because he understands those purposes. Do you? Do you? Do you know, for instance, that, that, you know, um, that, that we, can, we can develop smartphones and computers and social media platforms and they have tremendous amounts of power and they can do great good in the world, but they can also do great harm. Do you know that, that these things actually like, you know, they, it's not just that we shape them, but they shape us. Do you know that 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 the ways in which we we develop uh, biomedical uh, processes by by which to to save lives or or to even further reproduction that, that these kinds of things that they they have implications and they're not all good. Have you considered it? And do you cry out to God and do you argue with God about these things? I mean, I mean, maybe it looks like this. I, I've spent a lot of my life, and I know a lot of you have given your most of your lives to the academy, and you love the academy. I love the academy. In certain fields, in a lot of fields, it's getting harder and harder to be a Christian in those fields. And you ask, why? Why, God? Why are, is it the case that you allow certain people to to be in these positions and not, and not your people. It's like, uh, it's like in that movie Amadeus when, um, when uh, Solieri is, is very upset because with God, because he's given Mozart all these gifts and all these talents, and he's only given Solieri the ability to recognize that he doesn't have those gifts and talents. And he says, why, when he is an idolater and doesn't praise you and glorify you? Why, why are people able to have skills and brains and, and the ability and labs and research to, to develop technology or biomedical equipment in ways that, that don't consider the ethical implications? Why? Habakkuk argues with God because his answers don't seem to line up to you. And when you do, what what do you do when you have these questions? Well, first, you make your arguments like Habakkuk makes his arguments. And then you wait. Like Habakkuk waited. Chapter 2, verse 1, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he, that is God, will say to me and what I will answer, and will, and what I will answer concerning my complaint or what he will answer concerning my complaint. I will wait and I will see. And 600 years later, God's answer came. 
It took a long time, but it came. And when it came, guess what? It looked like God's creation purposes were completely undone. Because on that day, 600 years later, the sun turned black. And it also looked like God's covenant purposes were completely undone. Because on that day, the one true faithful Israelite, the only one who has ever been righteous, he was actually under the curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And there he endured the covenant curse and the covenant seemed to be broken, absolutely broken and completely dissolved. And yet it was on that day when creation seemed to be undone and when the curse seemed to be dissolved that God brought about a new creation and a new covenant and showed that he is faithful and true and everlastingly so. That man is Jesus. He is the answer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.